You're listening to a C3 Victory podcast. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au. Awesome, guys. Get your Bible, crack it open. The Word is living, it's active, it's sharp. Basically, the Bible says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, which literally means it can do things that even the natural can't do. It reaches places the natural can't reach. It changes things that no therapy could ever transform, which is awesome. Hey, I just want to tell you again this morning what's happening next week. Just an exciting piece of news I told you last week, and if you were on holidays last week and missed it, I'm going to say it again that we're launching the prayer ministry here at Central next week. It's time for it to ramp up, and it's starting. Well, you can cheer a little bit. That's good. Anytime we talk about prayer, you should cheer um, because it's one of the greatest weapons that we have and one of the greatest ways to commune with God. Prayer isn't just standing here telling God everything I want. Prayer is also listening to him and him telling me what he wants and me responding. It's going to be uh, led by Bronwyn McQuillan, uh, who has a great ministry in prayer and anointing in this area. And we're going to see things break open and accelerate. And uh, next Sunday morning, it begins here at nine o'clock in the auditorium, where we're going to get on the front foot. We're going to be prophetic. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to storm the kingdom of darkness, loose the kingdom of heaven, and believe for encounters with God as we come and pray. Um, If I had to do without Many things, instruments, worship singers, even though I I wouldn't, but if I had to, I would never do without prayer. Never do without prayer. Um, Prayer just moves the hand of God, and it's incredible. And uh, and from here, the prayer ministry of the church is going to start launching out to make impact in our city and beyond. And if it's not just for Sunday morning, but it's beginning on the Sunday morning, and if you are a prayer, I don't like always using the word intercessor. There is no gift of the intercessor in the New Testament. I know that just offended some of you. But there is no gift. We're all intercessors. But there is an anointing in intercession. And some people carry that anointing. But the moment you say intercession, people go, that's not me. I'm I'm not that powerful. I'm not that good. Uh, This is not about being powerful and good. This is about tapping into that which is good and, and watching his power go to work. I'd encourage you to read the book, Scare You to Death, in a good way, to read the old, old book, Reese Howell's Intercessor. Who's read that? Oh, good number of you. rest of you need to. It'll scare you to death, the power of prayer. They even, even historically track back to the German bombers uh, excluding bombing whales and flying over whales and headed, heading towards London. They attribute that to the power of prayer covering in whales under the ministry of Reese Howells and others like him. So we need that ministry to ramp up because it loses so many things. If you are interested in being part of that ministry and what it's going to look like in the future, see Bronnie and uh, let's get that thing kicked off and going and, uh, and breaking things open. I kind of sense from last week we're in a prophetic moment. Quiet. I believe we're in a prophetic moment as a church and I don't think that just kind of is consummated or even comes to its fullness after one sermon. Even though, you know, it's kind of like this prophetic picture. It's like an old sci-fi movie, you know, where you see 
this thing, you, you, you break open this thing, and all of a sudden this alien monster fills the thing you break open. So you break it open again, he fills it again. I'm telling you, you try to break something open for the kingdom of God, the enemy will come in like a flood and try to fill in the gap that you just opened up for the kingdom of God. When you see a door open, the enemy will do everything he can to try to shut that door or even convince you to shut the door. And you, you just can't go where God wants you to go after one sermon. It's not possible. And so he kind of wants you. I remember Juan Carlos Ortiz. Anybody ever read his stuff? Great little book, probably 30 years old now, called Disciple. In his church one day, he kept preaching the same message. Holy Spirit said, preach the same message. And he preached it week after week. I don't know how many weeks in a row. Till finally, somebody came up and said, Pastor Ortiz, when are you going to stop preaching that message? He said, the Holy Spirit said, I'll let you stop preaching it when they start living it. And they, we can't stand and think that one sermon alone, bang, that's going to bring revival. So we've got to go there again. But I believe it's a prophetic moment for us. This isn't just getting some information or a new way to hear or, oh yeah, we should get interested in that again. God save us from that. This is not peaking at a small interest. This is lighting a fire that's going cold. I, I'm telling you, I can't say it any nicer. It, 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 the fire is not what it should be and what it could be. And it's a prophetic moment. And I know many of you were moved last week and responded, but we need to do that again this morning. We need to go there. Uh, we need to go there until the fire is greater than the cold rocks around it. I'm talking about our hearts. So many of our hearts are so surrounded by... We, we used to camp in the Flinders Ranges, and back then, I don't know what they do now, but uh, all of us would gather like Indians around a thing, and we'd make a big pit. And we, you could dig a pit in the ground, and you stack up rocks around it, and that was where we cooked, where we, where we sat at night, where we did all kinds of things. But you, you, you know the thing is starting to go out because the rocks on the edge are starting to get cool, because the fire is not blazing. Some of our hearts are like that. The fire in the middle is going down to coals, and so these things around the edge that you might call marriage, finance, health, influence, and impact, these stones around the edge of the fireplace are going cold. There's only one thing you can do, stoke the fire. And we just got to do it again because it's an issue of the heart. Solomon wrote this, and I'm going to put it up again like last week. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And Solomon isn't saying that this is just about preventing sin. I wonder how many of us only read the Bible as a, a prevention, like, a, like a, a band-aid over a perpetual sore, thinking it's going to do away with a sore. Instead of seeing it itself as life, not the band-aid. So Solomon says, above everything else. Now, when God says that, it's pretty important. Guard your heart. It determines your life. And can I say this? The state of your heart will determine the state of your marriage. The state of your heart will determine the state of your faith. The state of your heart will determine the closeness of your relationship with God. little sign in my office I've had for decades just simply says this. If you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? And he doesn't move away. State of the heart. And Solomon's saying, man, this is your highest, 
priority. And so I, I kind of want to take Paul's lead, but I want it to be prophetic this morning. And I want to go back there. I want to just tell you what we said last week where he addressed three churches in the state of their heart. And they had some good things. Every one of those churches had good things happening about them. And make no mistake, sometimes the good can be the enemy of the best. We can settle for good and all of a sudden complacency sets in. We're a good church. Things are good. But are they the best? And so last week we just looked at one of them, the church at Rome. He had never been there. He writes them this great compendium of theology, which I'd love to go through with you if you had two years with me. And we'd get through six chapters. But he said to the church near the end of Romans that he's convinced. I'm absolutely convinced that you are capable, you are able. You have the ability and the goodness of God in your life to build each other up in such a way that you're going to be everything God meant you to be. I know you're strong. And so he writes them this compendium of theology. And yet he says, but that's not going to change you. Yeah, it'll give you a good solid foundation, but it's not going to light the fire. Now, I don't know about you, but there are parts of the world that are screaming out for this. And I wonder how many we've got sitting on the shelf gathering dust. There are parts of the world where they would, they, would, they would give a whole week's wages to have the opportunities we in the West have, whereas we just tip God when the bucket comes around. I wonder. You know, we, we cry out for more teaching. We choose the church that we're going to go to based on how good is the preacher in his teaching. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. The most abused gift in the New Testament is not tongues. It's not prophecy. It's teaching. False teaching. We should have good teaching. But any teaching that doesn't change lives is nothing more than education. God doesn't give us revelation simply for education. He gives us revelation for transformation. That was a lot of alliteration. Yeah, Nate loves that, don't you? Yeah. But it's true. What good is it sitting, reading, studying, and never being changed? What good is it? Well, the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. We come face to face with Him, beholding Him, so we can be transformed from glory to glory. And Paul says, listen, all that theology I just gave you is good and it's foundational, but it's not going to keep the drive alive. So... Chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you earnestly, strong, strong language, because of the mercies of God that you give your lives as a living sacrifice. Do you, do you see the language here? In the Old Testament, they kill it once it's gone, burned up. It was bled out and then burned up. He said, but you're not like that. It's not a once-off thing. This is something you have to live the rest of your life. If you are wanting the real life that God has, has, has made available to you, then my exhortation to you is you've got to live in sacrificial life for him and nothing less. And yet at the same time, the church in the West is looking for how can we make going to church and being part of the church and doing some things at church, how can we slot it into our life and make it easy? God becomes an appendage rather than life itself. Bill Johnson said it so well in his book, Hosting the Presence, convenience and sacrifice cannot coexist. I think it's almost comical 
to have a vision that says to influence our city and beyond for the kingdom of God. If we think we can do that conveniently. David said to his own wife who made fun of his worship, I will not give to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Whoa. And my concern as the main teaching pastor of victory is that it's easy to live convenient Christianity. It's easy to be comfortable. Nobody's trying to do anything to us. We're getting all upset about this vote, thinking it's going to change Christianity. It's like God spoke to me last Sunday morning and said, Keith, Keith, regardless of the outcome of the vote, I gave birth to my church into a climate where that kind of thing was rife. And the church thrived at its highest. I'm not saying it should go through. And I'm not saying I shouldn't vote properly according to the word of God. Period. I've already talked to you about that. But I'm saying to you, regardless of the outcome of the vote, the kingdom of God advances powerfully. That's the deal. And here's the deal. We look at a convenient Christianity and and it's somehow causing us to put non-combustibles on the fireplace. You know what I'm talking about. When we're in the Flinders Rangers camping and we're starting to get cold, we don't put damp things over the fire. And we don't even put things that are, they're not going to catch light, but they're just going to kind of settle it down. We're not going to put that over the fire. We're going to stoke it with all the wood we can find. Good, nice, hardwood. Not this flimsy little cheap balsa wood stuff, but nice Australian outback hardwood. It's going to burn strong. And yet in Christianity, we we somehow believe that if we put these non-combustibles on the fire, it's somehow going to satisfy God with sacrifices that cost us nothing. Like half-hearted worship. I ticked the box this week. God's happy with me. Because I ticked the box. I attended. I sang the songs. Or token service. Yeah, I better show up and do city serve because they'll wonder why I'm not there. Or irregular connection with God and others. Oh, I haven't read this for a couple of weeks. I'm feeling a little bit guilty. Maybe I should read a psalm this morning. Don't bother. If it were my word I wrote to you, I'd just say, give it back. Why don't you read it like that? It's a love letter. You don't read love letters like that. These things don't stoke the fire. They put a dampener on the fire. It's like Paul is saying, hey... The greatest thing you can put on the fire to make it burn and thrive is your life. That's what God wants. So I want to go to the second church. Not re-preach. This is, this is totally different than Rome. Paul had never been to Rome. Not until he was a prisoner there and he was about to get executed. But the second church Paul does a heart check with is very, very close to his heart. He planted this church. They're his children in the faith. He was the father of the church and he addressed them as such. And it's a very, very rich church, Corinth. They had so much stuff that the other churches didn't have. It was amazing. Don't you find it interesting that so many offering messages come out of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9? Have you read the bigger context around that? Paul is not commending them for their giving. He's he's actually exhorting them to give better because they've got so much. You read the context. Measure that with the end of Philippians where you've got a church struggling financially and really struggling financially and yet giving amazingly out of their poverty. And you've got Corinth who are wealthy giving 
little to nothing. And Paul said, you need to learn from them. It's a rich church. Chapter 1, verse 5, he begins his letter to them by saying, For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking. Understand, in the Greek and Roman mindset, one of the greatest things to do is to stand publicly and give a great speech. Oh man, you are so, you are so able to do so much. And it's, it's, all, it's not a big thing today, you know. we got too many electronic devices today. But in their day, if you could stand in, in a public platform, even on the street, and you could give this incredible philosophical uh, treaty, then all of a sudden, oh, you're somebody to be admired. And Paul said, you like that. You've got this amazing ability. And he said, and then you've got knowledge. Man, you're smart. You're intellectual. You're not just able. You're intellectual. Because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Verse 7, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift. Wow. I don't know any church that doesn't lack any spiritual gift. All of us lack something. And yet Paul said, you lack no spiritual gift. You're waiting for Jesus to be revealed. He says, you are rich with gifts and knowledge and abilities. You are, you are so well off in so many ways. And you know the reality as the father of the church? This should be an occasion of pride for Paul. He should go, man, I'm, I'm just so proud of you guys. But instead, you keep reading through First and Second Corinthians and you'll find a heart that is grieved, not proud. And it's not that he's trying to wield a big stick like this thundering prophet bringing doom and gloom. Thus saith the Lord God Almighty, turn or burn. He doesn't talk like that. He talks like a dad. You read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You've got a lot of teachers, but you've got one father. I begot you in Christ. I fathered you in Christ. And he's grieved for this because he knows that they're using their gifts and their abilities in a self-serving way. They're tolerating immorality that he said, that's not even spoken about among the pagans what you're allowing. And they were divided, just absolutely divided, so much so they were fighting at communion. Can you imagine that? They bring around the communion. I don't know who would fight over our juice, but I can understand fighting over a nice red, but over our juice, it's a bit ridiculous. But they were fighting at communion, which is ridiculous. And to top it all off, they showed total disrespect for Paul. As their father. Like who's that old man? He's ugly, he's short, he's bald, he's half blind and he doesn't even talk that well. I'm glad I'm not bald. (laughs) Nothing about you guys who are. But you know I'm pleased to say to you that over the decades I've been here caring for you, leading you. I have never felt dishonored by you. Matter of fact quite the opposite. I thank God I've been constantly honored by you. I'm grateful for that because I have pastor friends who their church is nothing but one grief from beginning to end. Had a pastor friend that, uh, and I won't say who, that, but before he was 50, he was burnt out. And before his wife was late 40s, had a heart attack. Nine years of hell they went through in their church because of their church. And that's not you. I'm so thankful for you that that's not my experience. And there's so many things I could boast about you. I'm I'm afraid to boast because I'm afraid that it's kind of like praying for patience. The moment you pray for it, you know what happens. The moment you boast, you know what happens. But as a spiritual father, I need to be honest with you and tell you, I still carry some grief. Not to the degree Paul did, but I still have concern. And it's coming out these two weeks. Paul actually didn't say he was grieved. He actually said, I'm afraid for you. Did you know that? You jump to the second book. It's like he brings all these corrections in the first letter. They don't get it. 
You heard what I said. One sermon doesn't create revival. He writes an amazing letter and gives him so many opportunities. So he writes a second letter. And you get to chapter 11. I, I, I love chapter 10. We know that one, you know, about pulling down strongholds. And do you realize the context around pulling down strongholds? This is not about your thought of depression. I mean, it can, but it's not primarily about that. You know what it's about? It's about the church being bound up with strongholds that then affects the city. And he said, it shouldn't be that way. God's given you weapons to pull those strongholds down. And yet you get to chat. Because remember, there's no verses and chapters. It's a letter. Chapter 10 flows to chapter 11. Watch what he says in chapter 11, verse 2. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Look at the language. This is family language. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Do you notice he didn't say it has happened? He said it's on its way to happening. And I'm afraid for you. Things like this don't just happen. They slide. James said in James 1.15, when lust or desire is conceived, in other words, it's, it's birthed in my heart, then it moves to action called sin. When sin is finished with me, I'm dead. Lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. When sin is finished, it brings death. It never jumps from desire to death. It's got this regression all the way down. Now, why do you think that happens? I can tell you exactly why it happens. Because in Peter, God said this, God is long-suffering toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He puts up with a lot before it gets to the death period. But trust me, a church can get to the death period. Look how many church doors have been closed. Do you know in America, the land of church where there's approximately 400,000 local churches, I think I read it something like 1,500 churches a month close their doors. 1,500. God says, dead, gone. The good thing about God is where one dies, he'll raise up another one though. So Paul is grieving as a father and he's going... You've lost your simplicity in Christ. I've set you apart for an amazing life with him. And the language, see the language he's using, I, I, I set you apart as a bride for Christ. I betrothed you to one husband. You understand what he's talking about here. It's very different to our culture. As a proud father, he would take his young teenage daughter, just like, just like Mary's parents did to Joseph. She would, they would take their, this proud father would take his pure young teenage daughter and he would betroth her to a man and she would be his and his alone for life. Except in this case, she's not just betrothed to a man, she's betrothed to the king. Imagine that. Remember Mary from Tasmania, betrothed to the king of Denmark? Imagine what her parents must have felt. Well, what would you do if you were her parents? Yes, you know, kind of thing. She made it. But the betrothal period is not actually the marriage. In their culture, betrothal means it's as good as marriage except for it's not together yet, consummated. 
And so for a period of time, she would still live at home with her parents and he would be with his parents and that she would wait and she would keep herself pure, absolutely pure and devoted to that man who is coming one day to take her home and then they consummate the marriage. And this is what Paul is saying. I have set you apart as a pure bride for Christ and Christ alone, but I'm afraid because you're starting to lust in your heart after others. That's what's going on here. <gasps> Take a deep breath. Paul's saying, I'm afraid that you're flirting with other loves and you're in the danger of losing that simplicity of a teenage girl who's looking forward to her husband coming to take her home. You've lost sincere devotion. That's an amazing thing. That's the language Paul is using as a dad. How would you feel as a dad if that happened to you? Your daughter starting to commit adultery, either in her heart first and then in life, with a man she hasn't been set apart for. God says... Paul prophetically tell the church, that's what I'm feeling. Church is flirting with this. It's not what it should be, and it's not what I set it out to be. Erwin McManus, this book I recommended last week, and I'll recommend it again, The Barbarian Way. He's speaking at uh, Presence next year. Mosaic Church out of Los Angeles. By the way, a mega-sized church with no buildings. Just thought I'd throw that in there. He said this. Perhaps the tragedy of our time is that such an overwhelming number of us who declare Jesus as Lord has become, have become domesticated, or if you will, civilized. Here it is. We have lost the simplicity of our early faith. We didn't start out as a religion. We started out as a revolution. Beyond that, we have lost the passion and the power of that raw, untamed, primal faith. Where is it? And as a father, not just a teacher... Like Paul, I'm afraid that some are being led astray from their purity and their love, their pure love and devotion to Jesus and Jesus alone. And even though you've got abilities and you've got knowledge and you've got gifts and you've got ministries, that does not ensure you're going to finish strong. Abilities and ministries do not mean maturity. And I'm afraid. Because spiritual adultery doesn't begin in the act. It begins in the mind and the heart where we stray. Oh, he's taking his time coming back. And, oh, it's been so long and we face so many tough things in this betrothal period. Maybe he's not coming. Maybe we ought to just go out and burn our lamps. Come back to your first love today. There's another opportunity to come back to your first love today. Mm. third church so Paul's talked to one church as a teacher the other church as the father but this is a different church Paul wants to do a heart check with the, what he called the faithful church the church at Colossae and he addresses them as a prayer now can I add this word in there a prophetic prayer he's not just praying niceties he's praying prophetically he said at the beginning of the book to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ Jesus who are in Colossae, we give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying for you always since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints 
because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth, the truth of the gospel. Man, they're a church that seemed like it's just powering on. They're doing so well. They seem secure. And Paul's thankful for this all-important triad. You know the triad he talked about in 1 Corinthians 13. Everything else fades away, but these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And he said, man, you guys have got it nailed. You've got a reputation of being strong in faith, hope, and love. And he said, not only that, you're growing and you're bearing fruit. Can I suggest to you that even church growth doesn't mean church remains? One of the saddest things is to go visit what once was a mega church and see 500 people sitting in an auditorium that seats thousands of people. Man, it's sad. Like, you, you can't help but sit there and go, man, what once was? Instead of going, look what is and what will be. Man, it's sad. It's like, God, what's going on here? But you know, the strength of this church didn't give Paul a, a sense of false satisfaction cause him to take his foot off the pedal Paul wasn't the kind of guy that takes his foot off the pedal and as a matter of fact it made him even more diligent made him kind of speed up watch this chapter 1 get to the end of chapter 1 verse 28 we apostles teachers we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom why so that we may present everyone perfect that's his goal that word perfect in the original just simply means mature complete Our goal is to get to the stage where I can bring you before Christ and go, bang, they're complete. They are good. They are so awesome. They're complete. And he said, I do this with all the labor. I labor with all the energy, struggling. You know that word struggling is the Greek word agonizomai. What does that sound like? Agony. It's the same word used for uh, an Olympic runner who is struggling to win the race with everything that's within him. He is, if you read the New King James, it uses that dirty word that starts with an S, striving. By the way, there is a right way to strive because the motive is pure. He's not doing it to earn God's favor. He's doing it out of God's favor. But he says, with all the energy that's working within me, man, I'm putting the pedal to the metal and I'm going for it because I want you one day to be in front of Christ totally mature. And he goes, well done. When he comes again as your husband, he says, well done. You're incredible. Chapter 2, verse 1, he said, it's not just for you though. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you. And for who? Those at Laodicea. Interesting, this is a letter, Colossians is a letter that was meant to circulate between Colossae and Laodicea. They're less than 20 kilometers apart. In old terms, they're 12 miles apart. And so Paul says, I am wrestling, I am struggling because the Christians and the saints at Colossae who are so powerful and the Christians at Laodicea, I want to one day stand with you before Jesus and go, perfect, well done. And so in Paul's heart and mind, you need to understand this, there's a fine line between security and complacency. Listen to me. Both can have an effect of leaving you vulnerable. Shouldn't be, but it can. For instance, remember Paul said, man, I preach and I preach with all my heart, but after I preach. Can I tell you as a preacher, I'm probably not the person you want to hang around with after I preach. I'm not that hospitable. I'm not that warm. I'm not that friendly. I'm not even that satisfied. 
There's a something going on in me. I'm not delivering to you a speech. I've had people come up to me. Maybe they don't understand church. That was a nice speech today. It takes every bit of grace. Me going, it's not a bloody speech. I'm pouring out my heart here. I'm bringing faith. I'm taking down mountains. Come on, get on the page. They don't understand. I'm not just up here to talk. My talking isn't that good anyway. This is different. Very different. Paul said, I discipline myself after I preach, lest I also become disqualified. You hear that? One of his most vulnerable times should be in his most secure time. Listen to me. Security turns into complacency when we cease to give something the attention it needs so that it stays vibrant and alive. Let me say that again. Security turns into complacency when we cease to give something the attention it needs to keep it vibrant and alive. Your marriage is like that. You want your marriage to be fun and alive and fresh? You better give it attention. Or else it'll slip away. Because it doesn't matter how strong we are in, in this moment now, there's still a chance of slipping in the next moment. Because it doesn't begin with the head, it begins with the heart. Devotion to Christ, not knowledge of Christ. Listen, I, he doesn't accidentally here mention Laodicea. All you've got to do is flip over to the end of the book, Revelation 3, starting at verse 15. What does God say to these people at Laodicea? Three, about 34 years later, 34 years later, what's God saying prophetically to that church? You make me sick. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Have you ever tried to gargle with warm, salty water? That's the worst thing. You know, you have this sore in your mouth and your mother makes you gargle with warm, salty water. I mean, as quick as you can, you want to go, Pah! This is the language God is using about Laodicea. And that's interesting because Paul here, three decades earlier, is saying, guys, I want to set you up so that you end well. You get three decades later, and they're not even hardly existing as far as God is concerned. And it's interesting, it's to that church God says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open the door, I will come in. It's not about people getting saved, it's about the church having Christ in his place again. Mm. I had a friend that I met with, I won't say how many years ago, but it wasn't that long ago. He walked away from his ministry, his family, and ultimately his faith. And when I met with him, he called me up. Keith, will you meet with me? Nobody else will meet with me. Will you meet with me? Yeah, sure, I'll meet with you. So we had lunch. And he told me, I asked him, so, so where's your faith? What do you believe? You're going through this horrendous time. Where are you at in your faith? And he told me, he said, well, I still believe in God, but my view of Jesus, like we had been taught at theology and stuff, my view of Jesus has changed. I went, oh, okay. Hmm. And he said, uh, I, I, I don't believe about Jesus like we were told to believe, that he is the way to God. I believe he's just one of the ways to God. And I went, oh, okay. I wonder where this all began. Funny enough, it didn't begin in a theology school. It didn't begin as he got some new revelation when he was reading the Bible. Sitting down one day to prepare his sermon. This is a guy who used to preach every week to a big church. 
So I met with his wife at Presence a few years ago. And I said, where'd this all start? Because he left everything. And she said, you know, it started when he got down. Ministry started taking a toll. He got down. He started getting a little bit depressed. And he'd sit in a room by himself, lights dim low, and he'd just start drinking wine. She said it turned into a bottle a night. And she said he turned to the bottle to deal with his depression. And because the bottle doesn't necessarily do away with depression, but it'll actually increase it. She said he then started on Facebook and found an old high school girlfriend. And they started chatting. And before I knew it, he had left us, left the ministry, left the church, started living with his girlfriend. So you see, his fall didn't begin with some obscure belief or new revelation. It began with the heart. And it didn't begin with just one big sin. It began with just desire slipping downward. And making choices. And more times than not, moving away from the simplicity that's in Christ doesn't begin with knowledge. It begins with devotion. How many Christian books have you read? How many times have you read your Bible? How many sermons have you heard? How many podcasts do you have access to? That's not going to prevent your heart from slipping. It should help. But it only helps if the heart is wanting it. It's an issue of the heart. So Paul challenges the church at Colossae and he says this. Chapter 3, he just goes to it. He goes, I'm, a, I'm praying this prophetically for you now. I know you're strong. I know you're awesome. But it's almost like God lets Paul see down into the future and he sees Laodicea and he goes, oh God, I've got to help stop that. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Set your hearts. You know what that, if you, it depends on what version you read, but it literally means seek diligently. Things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Don't get bound by the stuff that's around you. Don't go after this stuff with your heart. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You died. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. He's speaking prophetically. I am talking prophetically to you right now. You know what he's praying for? I'm praying for what you seek and what you see. They'll determine your life. He's getting direct now. He's not just praying. He's getting prophetic and he's getting direct. Get your heart baptized in devotion for Christ. Keep your eyes and your thinking and your thoughts and, and everything about life fixed on Him and the simplicity that is about Him. Because here's the deal. What you continually dwell on is what will captivate your attention. So what you give your attention and devotion to determines the state of the fire. Because we need to focus on the person of God and His goodness and the plans that He has for our future. He wants to move us from glory to glory, strength to strength. And yet there's some people sitting back relying on yesterday's experience and when they got born again. Because the, the depth and the degree of faith for some of you is about yesterday, not today. And you're just content with a little bit of religion in your life. Listen, guys. I said it before, I'm going to say it again. It's difficult to have a revival when religion satisfies. 
just enough of religion to give a little bit of satisfaction and you go on with life. Do you know something? The wedding day doesn't ensure a good marriage. I heard a story the other day about a dad spending well over $100,000 just on the wedding for his daughter. I wonder how good of a marriage it'll be. Well, can I say this? Being born again, the day of your salvation, doesn't ensure a strong, mature faith. All it ensures is a beginning. And as a person who prays for you, and I'm speaking prophetically to you, who strives to present you mature in Christ, I can see danger of your heart slipping into a state of being lukewarm. You go, oh, really? Seriously? Listen, it might not happen suddenly, but like the church of Laodicea, you slowly ease into it by inattention and misplaced devotion. And I can't think of any greater word for you this morning than the one Jesus gave in the Beatitudes. As a matter of fact, it starts with the same way Paul said, seek the things that are above. Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. There is no better word I can give to you. As a matter of fact, I can't do anything else. I can pray for you, but I can't change you. I can offer you matches and wood, but I can't light the fire. Not for you, I can for me. Don't settle for a middle-of-the-road religion that creates this complacency in your soul. Jesus didn't come just to bring another religion into the world, for heaven's sakes. He, he brought a kingdom that shakes the kingdoms of this earth. And yet, this little book just rattles your cage. He said Jesus is being lost in a religion bearing His name. So I'm saying today, with all your attention, your devotion, seek Christ and His kingdom. Pursue and live that raw, radical, revolutionary life that you first received. Where has it gone? Where has it gone? Thanks for joining us for the C3 Victory Podcast. We would love to see you at one of our services. To find out more, visit us online at c3victory.org.au or check us out on Facebook or Instagram.